Hey, good morning, Brave family. So glad you are here. Good morning. Morning. So good. Hey, thank you for being here with us. Uh, we're going to jump in into our talk today. We're continuing our series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and I hope that you have been reading it. That is what I would love for you to do. So if you're just joining us or you're watching online, I can highly encourage you. I, I want to highly encourage you. I can and I will. Highly encourage you to read through this book um, as we go through it together as a church uh, family. And uh, there's so much that I'm just going to be unable to cover in this book, but there's so much wisdom in it. We'll jump into that in just a minute. But before we do, I have a very important announcement to make. Our men's softball team won this past week. And I... I told the guys, guys, this is getting announced before I ever jump into my sermon. And we didn't just win. We won by like a landslide, 18 to 4. Is that right? Oh, yes. You got to come out. People are buying tickets to see us. It's incredible. I mean, we are on the up. <laughs> in case you don't know, we didn't win one game last season. Uh, we were on the, yeah, I know, I know, but we're coming up. And, uh, and so we were pumped. We couldn't, yeah, we're like, we got a chance. And uh and so I'm proud of our, our men's softball team. And so we play on Tuesday nights, and uh, it was a great group of guys, a lot of fun. So victory is good. In fact, Hiro, the one who leads the group, says, man, winning is great. Like, I know, you know, we play to win the game, right? Um, amen. So that is an amen. Uh, and then, of course, next week, super pumped about our eighth birthday, and we'd love for you to come be a part of that. It's a special day for us as a church, and so we'd love to have you here. All right, uh, one more thing. Uh, go Niners. I'm going to go ahead and go for the Niners. I'm just letting you know. And I'm just letting you know that's who I'm cheering for. So, and the reason is real simple. If Patrick Mahomes wins uh, tonight, then, of course, the conversation about the GOAT will be there, blah, 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 blah. So I just want to end that conversation, have him lose so Brady can stay where he is. All right? All right. Let's jump into the Bible after we got all the important stuff out of the way. <laughs> all right, so if you have your Bible, you have your sermon notes, you can grab those out. If you do not have sermon notes, lift your hand, and if we didn't run out of them, then somebody can hand them to you. Uh, just lift your hand up, and someone will bring one to you. So a couple things to keep in mind when you read through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I mentioned this in the first uh, few talks, and I want to put these back up on the screen and that you pay attention to them. A key word and phrase you find in Ecclesiastes that we have to keep in mind when we read this today is that meaninglessness, right? This Hebrew word, hebel. And this word hebel meant vanity, vapor, wind, smoke. This meaninglessness to life, this word hebel, that it is pointless, that life is meaningless. But the second phrase is really important when you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, Go ahead and highlight it in your Bible, underline it, how many times it says under the sun. Because Solomon, the preacher, but Solomon's writing it, but he's listening to a communicator preach it, is using this language of under the sun. That life under the sun, which is where we currently live, is meaningless. And so you'll see these phrases being used throughout uh, the book. Two important things, that everything under heaven is meaningless. So two conclusions... And I gave you the conclusions in part one. And so in other words, I gave you like the summary of the whole book in part one. So revisit those two conclusions. Everything under the sun is temporary and does not satisfy. Nothing in this world under the sun, he concludes, can satisfy the soul. And the second was without an eternal perspective, everything is meaningless. It kind of goes together. Ultimately, without heaven, it's all hevel. Without heaven, it's all meaningless. If all we do is live and then die, he says, this is a meaninglessness to life. Those two conclusions are really, really important in the book of Ecclesiastes. And you have, again, this man who's debating with himself, this preacher, this speaker, who's communicating to an audience, to a gathering, and he's speaking to these people. You're listening in on his debate about life. He's obtained wealth and fame and all kinds of things, but nothing seems to satisfy his soul. And so he draws this conclusion that life under the sun is meaningless. 
But now we know that life under the sun is not all there is. We know because of 1 Timothy, we'll talk about later, or 2 Timothy, where we learn now because of Christ that there is life above the sun and that this world is not all there is. There is an afterlife, an eternal life. All right, so today I'm going to give you just five ways, five wise ways to live. And um, the reason I want to use the word wisdom today is because this is found in wisdom literature. If you want to know, you break down through the Bible. Uh, wisdom literature consists of Job, Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Songs of Solomon or Songs of Songs. And these letters in the Bible, when you read through these books of the Bible or you see those titles, they're found together, together because they're uh, in the same uh, wisdom realm, that these books give you wisdom in very as various aspects of life. And so wisdom literature deals ultimately with the way the world works, how what they found in the world and how people operate and what's important and what's not. And so in the book of Ecclesiastes, you find a ton of wisdom, and that's why I encourage you to go and read it. So I only have uh, a few things to go through today. I cannot cover every topic, but ultimately, the book of Ecclesiastes and what I'm going to do today is cover chapters 4 through 7. So 4, 5, 6, and 7. We're going to go through four chapters today, and the reason that I can do that is because um, and I think can still give a, a decent teaching to it is because we're going to get kind of more of a bird's eye view. If you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to find a lot of the same kind of topics being mentioned because he's talking about the same topic that life is meaningless under the sun. Life without God ultimately is meaningless. It's all hebel. This is his conclusion. But he talks about these different aspects of life. And so you can kind of go through it fairly quickly quickly, if you would, and still get a really good picture of what the book is all about. And it does not mean that you shouldn't go word by word and line by line if you'd like to, uh, but we just don't have time to do that. We could do it for an entire year, uh, but ultimately today we're going to get kind of more of a bird's eye view of these books. So we're going to start with chapter four because I left off with chapter three. By the way, thank you to Chris who spoke last week for uh, covering. You did fantastic. Thank you so much. I say that. And uh, so, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. All right, we're going to, you're going to notice I, I did pick and choose certain verses to pull out and talk on. Uh, that's not saying that the others are not significant. They are. But I'm going to leave you to that to, to read yourself. All right, so, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, uh, we'll start with verse 7. He says, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, his work. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. So he works so hard, he makes a ton of money, and still he's not content. For whom am I toiling, he asks, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Solomon is listening and he's thinking of a man alone. He's got no family, doesn't have a lot of close friends, no one to share his wealth with. Isolation is where he is. He's worked hard, but his work has sucked the life out of him. He works so much, he has no real meaningful friendships, no family to share life with. And so he is lonely. Then it goes on in verse 9, it says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity, uh, but pity and any. But pity anyone who falls and has no one there to help them. Verse 11, also, if two lie together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The reason he writes this is because roads in Palestine were not paved. There was oftentimes pits that people could fall in and get hurt. So I'll show it to you in Exodus 21. It says, if anyone uncovers a pit or digs one and fails to cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, or a person, if you would, okay, the one who opened the pit must pay the owner for the loss and take the dead animal into exchange. So these are massive pits that people can fall into. And so he's saying, you'd be a fool to travel alone, you know, and, and some of you know what that is. In our world, you tell people to don't travel alone or if they're driving through a certain town or a certain city or a certain neighborhood, right? Um, 
don't do that alone or don't go there alone. That, that would be foolish to do that. This is what he is saying. Plus, if they're traveling, it's not like they're getting from place to place in, you know, one quick trip. There's not cars and highways. And so oftentimes it takes them days or weeks or months to get to wherever they're going. And so there's lots of wild animals and different things you can uh, get in trouble. And so to have somebody to protect you. And if it gets cold, then somebody to help keep you warm because of body heat and very practical things that he's talking about. Ultimately, he's saying... Don't do, life of, don't do life alone. This isn't wise of you. Don't invest so much in your job and make money that you die alone. I mean, just practical wisdom. There's a movie, if you've ever seen it, with Nicolas Cage called Family Man. You ever seen the movie Family Man? It's about a guy who's got a lot of money, but he kind of lives alone. And then he gets a picture and a glimpse of what life is like when he surrounds himself with loved ones and family. And then ultimately he's left with this realization that life with others is better than life alone with wealth. And um, there's a great picture of telling that story. So write this into your notes. And I just phrased it this way because I think this is the application we get to take in from what Solomon, this author's writing. Live wise, live in godly community. Now, he doesn't say here live in godly community per se, but he certainly says that community matters. And so I just want to bring this really to us in our current world and where we live and how we function. If you have no friends, a lonely future, if you, have, don't, if you do life alone, you know, it's, he's saying this isn't wise or healthy for you. God created you for community. And I say godly community because I believe wholeheartedly that Scripture in the New Testament, which we get to look at today, talks about bad company corrupts good character. In fact, time following this, Jesus would once appear on the scene, and then Jesus would establish his church in the book of Acts. And the church is the body. It's a group of people coming together, gathering together, doing life together, praying with one another, sharing with one another. I mean, so much in the scriptures teaches the importance of doing life together. I hear people often say, and this is just practical wisdom, you know, I don't need to go to church. I believe in Jesus, and I don't need to go to church. And that is true in regards to heaven and salvation, that you don't need to go to church to go to heaven. Um, that is a fact. I believe that. That's scriptural. That's true. But don't tell me you don't need community, because God created you for community. And I would say further, and the reason why I didn't just say wise people, you know, have friends or live in community, but godly community. There's a statement I tell, I used to tell the teenagers a lot when I was in youth ministry, and I still think it's true for adults as well. And here's the statement. Feel free to use it. I heard it years and years ago, and I say it all the time, and it's something I repeat in my life. Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. And that is a fact. When you think about uh, just wisdom in that, go back to some of the biggest regrets that you have in your life. And look at who your friends were in that time period or in that season of your life. There's a fact that oftentimes who we circle ourselves with is kind of how we tend to go in different seasons of our lives. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Scripture says bad company corrupts good character. At some point, they start to merge and share in the same similar behaviors, if you would. So live wise. Live in a godly community. And I just thought about this too, and I just, nowhere in scripture is he saying this, but I had this thought of, yeah, godly community makes sense because he says, don't travel alone because if you fall into a pit, you're going to need somebody there to help you lift you out of that pit. That would be wise. And I also thought to myself, isn't it true that sometimes you could find people to do life with and then you fall into a pit and they won't pull you out? And sometimes you can have friends who actually throw you into the pit with them, you know? That's why I said godly community. Choose wise friends. Can I just tell you, can you just rethink some of your friends? Yes, you. You know, some of you still need to go, like, yeah, maybe I need to exchange one, okay? Or a few. And so don't do life alone. And let me just plug in groups right here. This is why most churches today, or should, and certainly we do, have groups, an environment where you can meet friends and get to do life with people. 
And the best part about Brave is we know you're not going to like everybody here. So you should date a group until you find the one you want to marry. Does that make sense? Just go the first time. I'm trying to give you permission. Go the first time. If you don't like them and you don't find friendliness there, no, nah, I think I'm going to check out another group. That's completely fine. We know what you're really saying. I really don't like any of you. Just keep going <laughs> until you find some people you gel with. Make sense? Praise God for diversity in multicultural churches. Amen? All right. See? You don't all have to like each other, but you do have to love each other. That's what Jesus said. All right, so he goes on. Uh, we'll go to chapter 5. Like, this is kind of be a little bit more uh, kind of not as this be more choppy because I'm just picking different verses out of chapters. So. Uh, but Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong, who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. All right. The word listen in Hebrew means to pay attention, and it has a double meaning of obedience. It's no different than when a parent says, did you hear me indicating, then do what I say by just saying, did you hear me? So I want you to consider what the writer is saying. He's saying, I've observed that people go into, let's say, the temple. He's observed people going into what we'll call today as a, as a church, a place of establishment where people gather. And I've noticed that people can just start uttering all kinds of things before God without ever really thinking about what they're saying. And they start praying all kinds of prayers without really giving thought to what they're praying. He actually says that's a very unwise thing to do. He actually calls them fools, the sacrifice of fools. So how do I know if I'm like that, in that category, I'm offering a sacrifice of a fool. How do I know it? Well, you'll be quick with your mouth. You'll have no intentioning, you'll have no in intention of listening or doing whatever it is that God says. But you say a lot. This is a powerful, powerful verse. If I had, I could do a whole sermon on this one talk. I thought about it, and I thought, gosh, you could really unpack this, and I might need to camp out on this just so you get it. This might be today one of the ones that I believe we as the body of Christ need to hear the most today. What does this look like to make sure I do, a, hopefully, a, a decent teaching of this? As your pastor, I hope that when you go to God, you know who you're going to. Don't make hasty words come out of your mouth. When we go to prayer, just practice this. Pause before you speak. I think there's a reverence that we need back in our hearts. Consider, he says, who you're talking to. Don't just treat sin like nothing. God, forgive me of my sins and, uh, and forgive me of what I've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Whoa, 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 whoa. Do you know who you're talking to? Like reverence. The one who knows every thought you have in your head, in your heart before you say it. Where he sits you are on earth. He is in heaven. He is almighty and powerful. Just wait a second. Sometimes parents will look at children and children will say something, just spat off words, and parents will often say to their children, who do you think you're talking to? 
can we hear God today? Who do you think you're talking to? We come with our complaining. Who do you think you're talking to? We come with doubt and worry and fear. Who do you think you're talking to? You don't have to come with vain repetitions, Jesus would later say. They think they're her, Jesus said, because of their many words. No. Don't be like those hypocrites, is what Jesus would say. Go away. Shut the door. Pray to your Father who's in secret, who hears you and then rewards you openly. I just challenge you to readjust your prayer life. When we go to prayer, it is way less about what we have to say. It's way more about what he has to say. What Solomon the writer is saying is when you go to communicate, when you go to meet with God, in our context, when you go meet with God, and now we don't even have to go to an establishment, to a temple, to get into his presence. His presence is always in us and with us for those who believe in him. So we can come to him anywhere we are and communicate with him, be in continual conversation with him. My encouragement is start with listening. Don't start with speaking. Because he already knows what you're going to say anyways. So he already knows the question that you're going to ask. In fact, you can have a really big shortcut because you don't even have to say anything. You just shut your mouth and listen. Now, I didn't say shut your mouth. The text said shut your mouth, so I'm just telling you what the Bible, the Bible says. Here's how it sounds. Like, like, and I'm not modeling the way to pray. I'm just trying to give practical, what does that look like, maybe. Like, just take your breath before you pray. Think about what you're going to say. And you will see prayer life change. And I'm not here to put all of my requests. I'm here to listen to what you want. And then, shh. And don't put them on the clock. And then James would say, don't hear what he has to say. Do what he says. Prayer is not about what you have to say. It's about what he wants to say. And then he invites us to tell him what we need, what we like, what we want. In alignment with his will. But the only way you know his will is by hearing what he has to say. Amen. Great wisdom when you think about it. So write this in. Live wise. Listen to God. Wise people listen to God. Later on in verse 10 of chapter 5, he says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Uh-oh. Okay, here's another sermon we could preach. But wealth is never satisfied with their income. I'm glad I'm talking to a lot of people who are satisfied with their income today. Because it says then if you, if you are not satisfied with your income, then you love wealth. And if you love wealth, he says, then you never have enough. And then Jesus would later say if you love money, you can't. You can't have him as your master because you only have two master potentials, and that's money and God. That's what he said later on in Matthew. 
So if you feel like you never have enough, money becomes your master, then God is not your master. And the way you know that money is your master is you're not satisfied with your income. Because you have fallen into victim to trap of, if I have more, then I'll finally He says, that is meaningless. Now, I love this line next, and this is so true. Come on. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. Here's what he's saying, ultimately. Solomon knew that one's, as one's net worth increased, so did their expenses. Have you noticed that in life? I had a friend tell me years ago, years ago, so true, the more money you make, the more you spend. Do you remember the day you're in college or maybe you're high school, college, like, man, if I could just make, wow, man, I mean, I, then I'd, you know, like, save, you thought, and then the more money you bring in, the, the, the thought is, well, shoot, now I can afford that. The more that comes in, the more that goes out. And look what he says next. He says, and what benefit are they to the owners except the feast their eyes on them? Do you know what he's saying? You know, you know what he's ultimately getting at here? The more money you have, the more people come to you and want more of it. Does that make sense? So he's saying, I've recognized that you get money, you have all this wealth, it doesn't satisfy, that's the first, but then he goes on to say, then the more money you make, the more money you spend, because people keep coming to you for money. I heard uh, Travis Kelsey this week was watching Super Bowl content, and at first, I don't know if you heard this, that he's like, they asked him, you know, what are his thoughts of the Super Bowl? He's like, all I keep thinking about is how much money I've spent on tickets to, for friends and family. See, if Travis Kelsey was your brother, you'd probably ask him for a dollar or two, right? Right? You know that. And if you have a lot of money, then people keep asking you for more money. He's like, what is this to life that people keep needing these things? And he goes on to say, the sleep of a laborer is sweet where they eat little or much, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. You know what he's saying? Oftentimes, you people who have so much money, the stress and the weight of money keep them from sleeping at night. That there's weight to this. He says, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded. Watch this. Wealth hoarded. They kept so much wealth to the harm of its owner. Or wealth lost through some misfortune. So that when they had children, there was nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes in naked from their mother's womb, and everyone comes, and so they depart the same way. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This is too grievous and evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain, he says, since they toil for the wind? They take nothing with them. Solomon knew they didn't take riches with them. Of course, historically, in context, he sees people like pharaohs, and you know them in Egypt. A lot of times you'll see, you know, Ramsey the Great in different tombs. You'll see people, there's this belief that we put treasure around them so they can take their riches with them to whatever is afterwards. So they would load up treasures and treasures and treasures of gold and all kinds of gifts so they would have an afterlife of wealth. Solomon at least knew that's not the case. Solomon also didn't know what we know about eternity today. He didn't have that picture in his mind, for sure, and certain as we know it is. He goes on to say in chapters 1 and verse 6, he says, I have seen another evil under the sun. Same context about money. 
and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor, and they lack nothing in their heart's desire. They get whatever they want. But then God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. They have so much money, they hoard it. And they save and they save and they save and they work and they just pile up so much money. And then they die and never get to spend their retirement money. Now, how sad is that? I know what you're thinking. Shoot, I'm closing out 401k today. He's right. We're going somewhere big, right? This is his, this is kind of his point that you, you store up all of this wealth and then you don't even know if you're going to have a chance to spend it. I know it's circling back to the same conversation we've had a little bit, but he does this throughout his letter. But here's what I want you to anchor into. In the New Testament, we get a more hopeful picture. Now, this is powerful when it comes to hope. Listen, the preacher, the guy who's speaking in this letter, doesn't have the same context that we have because all he sees is life under the sun. But because of Christ, we know there's life above the sun. Look what Jesus would later on say in Matthew 6. Do not store up for your treasure, yourselves treasures on earth. Don't hoard all of your money where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So here's a, a lesson I think we take from this. You cannot take your wealth with you when you die. That is true. No one refutes that. But you can send it on ahead by generously giving to God's work. Jesus says that there is a treasure in heaven. There is a bank account in heaven. So your bank account can be really big on earth and you can hoard a lot of money. Or you can stack up your wealth in heaven in front of you. Which bank account do you want to be larger? The one that's going to last you forever or the one that's on earth? Now, now I, I heard like two people who are going to have big bank accounts in heaven and the rest of you are going to be broke because you obviously don't hear what I'm saying. And let me push on this. Let me really push into this because this is so important as to where we are as a church and even as a church family. I want you to be free and freed from the love of money and the desire for more. That is all throughout scripture. This is the wealthiest man who's ever walked the planet saying this thing never satisfied me. And there was hopelessness in this book because he didn't, he didn't see what you see. He didn't know what you now know about Christ. And so it was like, this is meaningless. What is the point of all this hard work, all these dollars I'm storing up under the sun? He didn't have the luxury of knowing what you now know, that there's life above the sun, and that Jesus would come later and say, you can store it up. So just think about that. Do I actually believe that there's an account in heaven that I can store up treasures up there that will never be taken from me? And if so, what, what foolishness it would be to not take Jesus up on his advice and say, store it up there. Don't store it down here. Don't hoard it. Be generous. Jesus would say, of course, it's recorded in the book of Acts, it's better to give than receive. Do you know why it's better to give than receive? Because when you give generously, it stores it up for eternity. When you take and consume, that just eventually turns to dirt and dust. There's so much wisdom in this book we find in Ecclesiastes. So write this into your notes. Live wise. Live wise. Give generously to God and to others. 
Jim Elliott, a man of faith for sure. I love this quote. I've said it so many times. I will say it again and again and again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Ecclesiastes 6, verse 9, goes on to say, enjoy what you have. Rather than desiring what you don't, you ever tell your children, can you just be happy with what you have? He says, just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Everything has already been decided. It was known long ago what each person would be. Look at the wisdom of this line. I love it, man, and I'm telling you. There's no use arguing with God about your destiny. Can you just not argue? Can we just not argue with God about what he wants to do in our lives? Have any of you ever argued with God about what he's calling you to do? None of you. This is fantastic. You're all set free. There's no use in arguing with God about your destiny. You know what he's doing? He's saying, hey, I've recognized something. There's no use into it. I've tried. It doesn't work. There's an invitation here that he's making to you and to me to acknowledge that we're not in control. Therefore, enjoy life, he would write multiple times throughout Ecclesiastes. Enjoy life as it comes. And ultimately, when he says enjoy life, every time you read that in the book of Ecclesiastes, what he's asking you really to consider is that each day is a gift from God. Every day is a gift from God. And he is the one in control of the world and the universe and how it operates. He gives and he takes. And we get to trust him in that process to know that he's a sovereign God. And whatever lot I am given, I find contentment in. It's a joyous thing when you can live this way. Write this in your notes, number four. Live wise. Live grateful to God. Life is a gift from God. Make the most of it. Not by serving yourself, but by serving him. Live wise. Wise living is grateful living. It's like, man, live in gratitude to God for what he has given you. And then finally, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 4. A wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time. This past week, and I just yesterday came back from Miami. My uncle passed away more quickly than we saw. And so we went down there and my cousin asked me to share some words at, our, at the funeral. And it was interesting to me the timing of this all because I woke up yesterday morning and I knew I was teaching, of course, in Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes 7, I scroll down and I see this you know, verse, and then she walks up to me, <laughs> and I love her, of course, and she watches, I love her, I'm so, I'm, I'm grateful that she asked me to share some words, but a lot of times when you see pastors, you think we're always ready with a word from God, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's my uncle, you know, and he's there, it's an open casket, you know, and there's very emotional, there's family in the room, like, hey, will you say something, I'm like, now, you know, <laughs> what do you want me to say, you know, and it's like, I can't say anything now, what do I want to say now? And so she said, okay, okay, I'll give you a couple minutes, and you could do it. It's true. So she said, you know, I'll, get, I'll let you do it at the, at the gravesite where we had to go next, you know. So the whole way, we're driving in the, the line, and I call my wife. I'm like, I'm supposed to say something. And I'm trying to figure out what, what world am I going to say. And I felt like, okay. And I was like, wait a second. You know, God just showed me the verse to say. And so I got up, and I shared this verse, and. I say, just, I say that to you because, like, the timeliness in the word that God gave me, it was perfect, what I'm saying. Because here I was living this verse out. As I sat there and I looked at my uncle in the casket, it makes you think about what's important. If you ever want to adjust your priorities, Solomon is saying, go to a funeral. And then I'm, we're driving in the, the line, you know, all the cars. And I'm not sure that God, like, in, intended this to happen or something. But I couldn't help but to think about all the other cars that were watching all of our cars thinking about death, too. 
And who knows maybe how God was like working in different people as they watched this whole line of cars. Maybe readjust their thinking, how you spend your money, how you spend your time. Death will make you reconsider priorities. You start thinking about what really, really matters. And so Solomon is saying, last one, live wise, keep death and eternity in mind. I am not saying, like, we're all gonna die and just live sad, <laughs> like, you know. So make sure I'm clear with you. It's like, but, but keep death, I've been saying this so recently, like, keep death in your mind. I have done a lot of funerals in my life, celebrations of life, talked to a lot of people in places of death or near death. And I'm going to tell you right now, for most of you, if you've experienced that kind of thing or those conversations, it's going to be true for you. It's going to be true for me, for probably most of us. When the death comes around your life, families, friends, people around you, I'm telling you, most of the conversations, if not every conversation all the time, is centered around relationships. Rarely, rarely. I mean, I don't know rarely. That's not true. I have never heard of someone say, close to their deathbed or during someone's passing, man, I wish I would have made more money. Man, I wish I would have bought that thing before I died. Every time it is centered about relationship. Everything was shared at my uncle's funeral. No one talked about what he bought him. No one seemed to care. They talked about how he made him laugh. They talked about how he made them feel. They talked about how they are gonna miss conversations. It's all relational. Wise living, keep that in your mind. When you say yes to work and no to your child, Yes to work and no to your wife or husband. Do not be a slave to your employer. Everybody's going to go quit their jobs tomorrow. I'm out. <laughs> quit. Or you're going to get fired because you're like, I don't care about you. Amen. All right, last one, we're done. If today was your last day, would you spend the extra hours at the office or at home with your family? Live that way. If today was the last day, would you hold the grudge and fall asleep or chase forgiveness and reconciliation? Live that way. Solomon didn't know what we know, though. He didn't have the same eternal perspective that we have today. 2 Timothy 1.9, last verse. He didn't know this, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this, not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from the very beginning of time, to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. Now, this is huge, verse 10. And now... He has made all of this plain. Now, this is, so Ecclesiastes is before this, but now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior, that he broke the power of death. In other words, there is more to life than just under the sun. That's really fantastic, hope-filled news. That's massive. And he says, and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. 
more to life than just under the sun. There's a whole life above it. This is the hope in Christ, that we don't have to live a meaningless life. We can have a meaning-filled life, remembering that what we live in today is not all there is. There is more. Death is not the end. But only for those who know Christ as their Savior. There are two options when you get to eternity. Eternal life and eternal death. Solomon writes this from the context of not understanding how we see heaven in the context of eternity today. He doesn't also know the eternity life without God, that hell is way worse than life under the sun. Because in the life under the sun, we have hope in Christ, but in hell, there is no hope in Christ. There is a heaven and there is a hell. There is eternal with Christ and there is eternity without him. And it'll be worse than what you experience here on earth. Let that fear, holy fear, absolutely compel you to reconsider where you are today in your life with Christ. Good news, the best news in the world is that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world so that everybody who knows him and confesses their sins to him and believes in salvation through him and because of his resurrection does not have to live under the sun forever. Instead, we rise above it and go where there is no shame, no guilt, no greed, no pain, no sickness, no death. That's great news. And I can only urge you, compel you, if you don't know that today, to make the decision to follow I encourage you also to live wisely. Choose one that maybe really compels to your heart today and what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and take one of those five things I mentioned and say, which one do I need to begin to live more wisely in? Just ask the Holy Spirit. I trust that he'll tell you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you, God, for life. We thank you for making it clear, making it plain. First Timothy, we just read it. Second Timothy, we just read it. You made it plain by your appearing on earth who you are. You are God in flesh. And you left us a letter that we call the Bible. And all these writings and all these wonderful words to tell us how to live, but not as an obligation to get us to heaven, because the only way to heaven is through you, by your grace. And if today you want to give Jesus your life, like lay it down, say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to know that my eternity is secured in heaven. Surrender your life to him today. If that's you today, would you just lift your hand right where you are? I just want to pray with you. Just lift your hand high. I just want to pray with you. I see you in the back. I see another hand in the back. Just giving your life to Jesus today. And keep your hand up. Just, I see your hand right here just look at me for a minute. I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. It's good. I see your hand. I see your hand. Can we pray with those who have their hands lifted today? And if your hand was lifted, you can just repeat this with me. Just say, Jesus, I give you my life today. Thank you for dying for me. I believe that you rose from the dead.
we celebrate some of the decisions that we're making today. All right. So good. Hey, if you made a decision today, nobody jump up real fast here, okay? Um, if you made a decision today, uh, one of the ushers hands you a Bible and a Next Steps card and a little information about Next Steps. But I would love for you to fill that card out. And uh, there's a, lots of things that you can God bless you, take care.